Hello and welcome to the Bit of a Tangent podcast, where we bring you mind-bending ideas from science, philosophy, artificial intelligence, and medicine. I'm Gianluca, a data scientist with a background in computer science and genetics, and as always, I'll be joined by my co-host Jared, a Bayesian autodidact and, when he finds time, medical student. In this episode, we depart on a number of conversational tangents, including the ethics of lying and the effects of trying really hard not to, as well as some of the concepts and thoughts which changed the course of our lives. We also discuss religion, Santa Claus, and whether you only have a limited window to overcome flawed beliefs. And so, without further ado, here's the episode of Bit of a Tangent. I don't know if being self-aware helps you concentrate. Like, it, it suppose it's almost a distraction. Like, it, it helps you become more calm. But there's, the, there's, there's often the unintended, you know, upshot of, of mindfulness training that you can concentrate better the rest of the time when you're not trying to concentrate on being present. But it, like, it seems to train your concentration muscle to some extent. Yeah, that, that does appear to happen. And the other thing with mindfulness, which I enjoy, is... I've heard a few people now talk about how little generalization we get from knowledge, which like surprises me and other people. But mindfulness does seem to have that generalizability to it where training in like the specific setting of a mat and like your meditation practice in the morning does seem to transfer out into like these little interspersed moments throughout the day of noticing things a little bit more clearly. Mm. Oh, without a doubt. Yeah, it, it, it's, you know, analogous to training muscles in the gym you you know you re- what you can take steroids for <laughs> yeah you can mindfulness <laughs> steroids i suppose you kind of can i suppose that's what um what uh, hallucinogens yeah well, yeah is essentially you know you you drop acid it's like sam harris says you know you can train someone in the ways of meditation for years and never be sure whether they've actually achieved mindfulness um but if you give someone you know milligrams of or micrograms micrograms is it micrograms of acid uh, for LSD yeah. yeah micrograms of LSD and then and then sit them on a couch you can be sure that in like 10 minutes they're gonna absolutely you know lose their mind their whole world is gonna dissolve so it's I suppose it would be the steroid of of the meditation world yeah I guess that's that's one way of thinking about it oh I, I wanted to mention I finished one of Eliezer's essays in uh, rationality from AI to zombies the one called crisis of faith and I just thought it was excellent. I just have it on my phone. So I tend to read just like one chapter or two every day. Just like I use it as like a, when you pick up my phone and like, you know, you just find yourself on your phone by without realizing how you got there. I use it as my sort of anti like procrastination tool. So I'll then go read a chapter instead of like looking on social media or checking my email for no reason or something like that. So yeah, slow progress. I find it takes a lot of concentration and I find I, I read lines on average like 1.5 or 1.8 times because I'm just like really trying to digest it. So my, it's super slow going. It is. It's it's difficult, but I love it because it's so meaty. I it's mean, so good. Almost so, so every good. essay really could be a potential upgrade to how you think. And I just, I adore them. 
Yeah, no, they're fantastic. And the fact that it's all, like, open source, like, that's a great thing, because, like, if you read something good in a book, it's very hard to, like, share it with someone without telling them to kind of read the whole book. But, like, when you read these essays, you can just find the, like, permalink on this wrong and actually just send it to someone and be like, read this. Because there are, there are threads he carries through, um, but for the most part, he links to them. He's quite good about that. He's actually, it's almost a bit bad. I find it a little distracting because there's so many, like, hyperlinks that I find myself, like, clicking back to other articles to see like what he's referring to and all the things he's linked um i also have that problem yeah. it's it's link combinatorial explosion well at least you at least you're not really going to the websites on the kindle whereas when i'm on my phone it's very easy for me to like link to the websites as well not just the other articles and so yeah it's it, it gets quite it gets quite dangerous you get yourself into that um i'm gonna call it resource debt where you or like resource consumption debt maybe but where you, where you for every article you read you find like more than one article that you want to read and then like so like your your pockets just grows because every time you read something you add two more things so you just can never catch up pocket it's 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 not analogous to physical pockets anymore because my pockets tend to be empty whereas uh my pocket is just like this Pocket it should actually be called like a Tolkien-esque <laughs> magical item. Yeah. Like a, it's 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 like your inventory in an RPG <laughs> where you just accumulate like more and more you, stuff. You're like one you're like one dwarf, but you can carry like five hundred swords and like <laughs> <laughs> like a shield, a boat. Exactly. Yeah. But I suppose the idea comes from you know pocket that for later. But I, I find that. I, I mean, a lot of things just go there to die. It, it it kind of it helps me more in that it helps me realize what stuff isn't 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 it important. Like I'll pocket stuff as opposed to agonizing over it or emailing it to myself, and then in like a year when I see it in pocket, eventually, it's often not relevant anymore. So it's actually a pretty good way of filtering out the the wheat from the chaff to some extent. I actually I, I think of it a very similar way, and I learned that technique from you. Because you mentioned uh, you have that like very interesting technique where you try not to make a purchase. I'm not sure if it's above like an arbitrary amount or something, but you first have to write down in a spreadsheet like the thing you want to purchase. And then if after a month you still want to buy it, you then go out and do it. Yeah, that's exactly. Yeah, I, I found that very, very successful. Like it, it works really well for like leisure items that you can live without but you'd like would be nice to have like that's that are quite expensive it works perfectly for that right so like you want another a new pair of headphones okay cool you put that on the list if you still want it in a month or more like then maybe you can do it if you if it's affordable so the one thing i was thinking about today is i was actually reading some of uh, rationality from ai to zombies and eliezer was writing quite clearly i thought about how there's almost a time limit before someone can have like the crisis of faith and he was speaking specifically in a religious sense. So, like, at some point, if, if you don't question your faith before, like, some arbitrary but fairly young age, let's say, it just gets cemented in in a large proportion of people. And so this was obviously a bit of a lamentation on his part. So I guess what I wanted to ask you is if there's, like, any story you have about when you first questioned or if maybe you always questioned it or just what it was like for you growing up and uh, how you came to end up as the... Bayesian rationalist that you are yeah and aspire to be yeah I I remember I remember reading that one it's it's a really thought-provoking one and it's kind of like he he speaks about how like beyond some point if a person is still uh, religious or has you know some practice of faith then 
they are like with very high likelihood going to stick with that for the rest of their lives because that's kind of just part of their identity and they will then defend it regardless of like what the rest of their belief network says so it's 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 kind of like what they say about language learning you know like if you if you don't learn the language between the ages of like 5 and 15 then it just is like so hard that you'll almost never learn it um but but probably more more of a factor than that because it's like fundamental questions about the universe a and b most of the time people don't talk about the things so yeah it's a very infrequently contested set of beliefs as well and like for the most part it doesn't affect how people behave in society like if you talk about like a modern mostly secular nation and you're like a one of those uh, chilled new agey type christian of that faith you, you you're not going to behave demonstrably differently for the most part than anyone else in the society because primarily it's dictated by the societal norms and taboos and laws and you know the sort of uh spiritus mundi moral code that that everyone seems to have so yeah so it, it, that was a really interesting one for me and yeah so if i if i think back to my own life i suppose part of it is always like the the, the precursor to giving up religion is uh is like santa claus and the easter bunny and the tooth fairy and all of those things and it's like they're like the stepping stones so i remember i remember being about seven years old as in as in grade one and confronting this idea that santa wasn't real and being like emotionally upset about it but like the like you know, once you once you believe the sky is like blue you can't make yourself believe the sky is green d- despite how much you want to so i i but you can make yourself believe, believe you believe in belief. yeah so I, and and i i think like i think even then it was the kind of thing i was grappling with but just not in those terms obviously just like this thing of like i wanted to believe in santa but i couldn't because i now knew I, like the the doubt over overwhelmed the the ability to like believe as a child and then there, i think even before that i had like overheard people like saying how many did you hide on easter and like things that like just fit the the evidence of there is no easter bunny it's just you know your parents putting easter eggs around that's how they know where they all are and how they you know know how many yeah all those kind of things so i think those were all precursors to that um and then yeah it was it was interesting when i started in high school one of the first things that we did um in like our first week was my English teacher had us like write down like a, a like a letter to our future selves for when we're in matric um as to like where we expected ourselves to be and what we expected our, ourselves to be like and you know when I got this back in matric I saw like all of these things and I was like oh yeah that's really interesting but the one was just like um I I hope to be more like like more like stronger in my faith and more spiritual and have like a better relationship with God which was really interesting because like I was so heavily because I was in a Catholic junior school I was so heavily indoctrinated in things like from I think by the age 12 13 I actually just sat down to like read the whole bible and I read like almost all of the old testament and one of the gospels and like some of the stuff in like revelations and I skipped the psalms those those don't count in my opinion um <laughs> they're just like extra little bits but yeah so I was super into it and I, I even then I struggled to reconcile things and um like I, I, I was like very into like spies and military stuff and all of that. And I struggled to reconcile like my interest in this stuff with like the obvious like moral uh, quandaries that it, you know, that it, that it's, um, that it, that it comes, that it comes with. So like, you know, like Jason Bourne is the coolest guy ever, but you know, he's not a very Christian guy. Um, and, and so, yeah. And so I, I, I took that with me into high school, but, but I, but I think quite quickly it's, I think even like as I started, I was already, you know, 
butting up against the the incongruencies and the fact that things didn't square up and the fact that it it was it was difficult work to try and make it all fit together as an as a inherent like belief network and I, even then I was noticing it so like by the time I was you know 17 it had all unraveled pretty much to the point of of no return um and then obviously there was all the philosophizing and reading and debating and discussing that happened between then and that I think is that critical I think that that critical window so yeah it very it very much mirrors that that uh, that hypothesis of um of Eliezer's. and i'm interested to know your um comparison to that and your thoughts yeah you know i mean i guess it's it's amusingly similar so uh i think you covered like very similar territory for example i, I remember distinctly having santa claus just get shattered out of existence on i think it was it's, it's the first christmas i have a memory of and I think I was about three at the time. Uh, I know that I had Christmases before that because there's photos. But the first one that I remember, I remember that uh, Santa pitched up and he gave me a present. And I just, I, I couldn't get past the fact that my father seemed to disappear when uh, Santa Claus arrived. And, you know, I couldn't reconcile the fact that Santa is like this special thing. So clearly it makes no sense that uh, my, my dad would disappear and then maybe I was more rude than uh, other children of that age are, but I, I had to investigate this. So I, I ended up uh, trying to tear off Santa's <laughs> robes to see if he was wearing the the same uh, top as, as dad, and he was. So uh, the Santa hypothesis did not stand up to testing quite so long. <laughs> that is a fantastic story. Wow. <laughs> but that's that's pretty extreme right your your first your first christmas that you remember was the same christmas that like became like your last legitimate christmas in a way in a way i mean like i do remember though then like my parents sort of doubled down and, and tried to say oh no 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 like uh it's coincidence or whatever you know which i guess in hindsight is is really bad right i mean that's like telling kids your you found a hypothesis and uh never mind actually yeah. but and, I, and i'd like to aside. i'd like to come back to this thing of why we tell kids these lies um and what the consequences are and, and if a good bayesian should but we'll come back to that all right all right but so i guess then as you say it, it really does come down to belief and belief at that point like i knew that for my brother's sake and almost for my parents happiness sake it was good to act as if you know, there was like this magical Santa thing, even if, if you'd like sat me down and asked me to bet chocolate or something that else that like four-year-olds care about, I, I don't think I would have staked much on there literally being reindeer flying through the air. But yeah, I mean, it'd be interesting to check uh, how much I'm confabulating that memory, uh, because I know that the research on like early childhood recall is not complementary to uh our abilities to tell straight stories. But then the, the religion part, so I didn't actually go to as religious a prep school as you, but there were like, you know, Bible classes. But in high school, there was the whole Catholic aspect. And it was always the, I guess the most apt concept is like double think in the whole Orwellian sense, because I was always conscious of, similar to you, like wanting to do well by it, you know, like you want to conform you want to please the creator of the universe but then also like having several experiences where like i would say like surely if anything the creator of the universe right now is like not too pleased and then nothing would happen and so i ended up in this very strange dance of irreverie or irreverence where it seemed like you could test the so-called limits of uh, the creator's patience and you know i mean i guess maybe if i was a uh, 
in a confirmation biasy mood that would have just served as further proof of his benevolence but to me it was more like because w- w- when you speak to christian people now uh, like a quote you'll often hear is no, no no like yahweh is a wrathful god and this is somehow justification right so from from that point of view him not being wrathful to me was would count as evidence against his existence but i do remember very very firmly like the first time that i almost woke up to the like definite absence and I even discovered like a, a physical remnant of it the other day. Uh, it was kind of amusing. I was cleaning out a cupboard. But I remember in varsity, in like one of the first weeks that I was here and lying in my bed at night and sort of just realizing like, I don't believe in God. And like, it was weird because I had to say it. And so it was almost like a, it was a, a belief that was already formed, but had not been accepted in some sense or, or made conscious. And then I, I, I think I was like so stunned by this uh, like admission that I went and wrote down like a little, what would you call it, an, ad- an admission note. And you know, it went along the lines of like, I acknowledge like the non-existence of the soul and all these like ramifications of... Like your anti-apostles creed. Yes, exactly. You know, and it was like very important to me clearly to like, I guess, I guess, you know, it's a, to use Yadkowski's terminology, right? It's that crisis of faith and that, that standing up and, and not flinching in the face of all the ramifications of your belief, you know, or lack thereof in this case. Yeah, I mean, it's actually like quite a brave thing to like, to take that, to take that wager, to not, to not hedge your bets. But at some point you just, you can't believe in belief anymore because it's everything else in your mind is refusing to do that and watching for when you're accidentally doing that. You've trained yourself to, to avoid doublethink and belief in belief, and then you notice that, and you can't ignore it. Uh, it just occurred to me, uh, Jean-Luc, maybe we should try and define roughly belief in belief, just in case other people aren't as familiar You're with it. You're welcome to go for it. I'm, I'm not. I'm. I'm not sure I can do it justice. All right, I'm gonna. I'll give it a try. But I think part of me also hoped you'd uh, take on this. But to my understanding, so there are propositional statements, and you can believe them. But if at some point you you know, encounter evidence which makes it almost impossible or impossible to hold that belief anymore, you can still believe that it is good to believe that thing. And then you can pull a a kind of mental bait and switch where you don't even notice that you're doing that. So you now believe in how it is right to have this other belief. And you don't notice though that that is actually the belief that you're holding. So you know, like the good example would be me. I probably wasn't distinguishing between the fact that I believed in Santa and the fact that I believed it was good to show that I believed in Santa to my parents. But it is difficult to do justice to almost anything that Yadkowski writes. <laughs> but, but, but this is also, it's based on Dennett's thing, isn't it? Is it? Isn't it originally Dennett's idea of belief in belief? Yes, yes, you're right. It's, it's Dan Dennett. And is this the thing that Yadkowski sets up by giving the scenario, which I think he may have borrowed from, uh, from Feynman, I, I, maybe, or from Sagan, one of the two? Oh, it was oh, with is this the, the dragon, dragon in the garage, right? Like, because you're having to like keep mental track. Of, so if you, if someone tells you there's a dragon in the garage, and then you go and say, let's look at the dragon, and you'll go, but no, the dragon's invisible. And then you go, well, let's listen for it, and then no, it's inaudible. Um, and the person person is having to keep track in their mind at the same time what is really there, as well as what they are believing they believe is there, and constantly comparing the two in order to come up with all the justifications for why you won't see what you're expecting to see, which is what they're also expecting to see, but they're 
believing they believe something else. And so that obviously ties in really heavily with um, a topic that comes up often in, in Yadkowski's writing, which is what experiences do your beliefs anticipate? So maybe yes. uh, as you go through that, you can just touch on that briefly, because I think it's just such an integral idea. and. Yeah. Uh, it's one which it's not actually so intuitive, I find. I always find myself reminding myself what it means for a belief to anticipate experience. Yeah, so, I mean, it, it kind of relates back to the scientific method, right? You should write your hypothesis before you start doing your experiment. That's how you get phlogiston or phlogiston, however they want to say it. But yeah, it's it's this idea of you can justify anything after the fact. It's, it's not hard. That's not the difficult thinking. The difficult thinking is going, what would you expect to happen before the fact? and then doing the experiment and testing and then comparing what you did observe from what you thought you would observe and then reevaluating and repeating. Um, and so, you know, if you said there's a, there's a dragon in my garage, you'd go, okay, well, what would I expect if there were a dragon in my garage? And you, 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 your belief shapes the expectation that there would be a dragon in there if you actually believe it and that you could then see and uh, touch and smell and taste and hear the dragon if you want to get that close. But if you actually don't believe that, then you're, you, you'll notice yourself believing that there's a dragon, but going, oh, but it must be invisible because you realize that that's not what you really believe. So I, I suppose it would relate to that. Yeah, I, 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 the way I always like to phrase it and when I make this point to other people to, to try and avoid inferential steps, I kind of go like, you know, imagine, imagine another world in which this thing were true or weren't true whatever it may be, and what would be different in that world compared to this one. But uh, yeah, so coming back to this idea of belief and belief, yeah, um, actually when you were speaking about going, uh, actually like I overtly now state and know outright that I don't believe in this. Yeah, I, I definitely existed in, in doublethink for a long time where I would act as if there were no God, and yet simultaneously if you'd asked me, I would have said, yeah, probably so... I guess it's a good reminder of like the humility needed to be in any way clear in your thinking. Yeah, so I have two things to say on this and then one thing I also want to jump back to. So the, the two things on this are, firstly now you've just, you've just made me remember that I was in the state where, so I think with sort of my last two years of high school, I sort of finding any kind of way that I could justify belief. Like when I was younger, I sort of looked into like the science of like miracles and like those books that are like, oh, and the, you know, the parting of the sea was the seismic events. And I'd looked into all of that, but I, it wasn't actually all that compelling and it, it felt like lying to oneself and uh, pattern matching. And then, so the last two or three years of high school, I, you know, cause you had compulsory chapel that you had to attend and there's all this like familial pressure to do like confirmation and, and things like that. And it was just like the, the default behavior, the status quo. So you just kind of go along with it. But I had this thing of, I was finding any sort of possible way to like make that still mean something. I think even though I didn't have the, any of the beliefs and so i had this idea of something i called i called the trance omniant which was just which was just means between everything right so this trance omniant was just my terminology for whatever it is that sort of gives people's universe like an other right so like for a Christian, that's Yahweh. But for a, you know, for a, a polytheist, that's, you know, all of their gods and how they relate together and the heaven that they live in. For a, like a physicist who's like really spiritual about like the laws of nature, that's the laws of nature. Or, you know, it's like the, just the natural world or whatever. It's whatever, I suppose, one reveres and, and is astounded by and, and marvels at in the universe, you know, whether it's just looking up at the, the night sky or whether you actually think there's a, a dude with a beard in the clouds. And so I just had that term and, and I kind of justify that going, okay, well, everyone's tapping into that same core thing that like it's part of human nature, clearly. 
And so I'll just give it this name. And then when everyone else is like pretending to pray to this bearded guy, I will map that onto revering the universe and just how it all fits together and that kind of spirituality. So but I didn't have the terminology because I hadn't read Waking Up yet. So I, I was doing that, but I, I still kind of like would have had to have justified being a Christian. But I think a large part of the reason for that, and that's the second thing I wanted to say about this, was just like the pressure, right? So as soon as I got to varsity, I had the same sort of experience as you. And I think that says a lot about... Because once you get to varsity, everyone kind of just feels free, right? And, and no one feels like ashamed about what they do sexually and what they dress uh, in and how, what hairstyle they have and, and, you know, what they, like everything just kind of becomes much more free and open and you start to actually form your identity, especially coming from, you know, stricter schools with a religious background. I wanted to ask quickly, whilst we're still on the topic of religion, either in the years leading up to what we can just call this like crisis of faith or like moment of realization or maybe in the years subsequent uh both of us have definitely been in our fair share of arguments and uh debates discussions with religious people about their beliefs but i wanted to ask for you maybe like right now are there any particular lines of argument or pieces of evidence that like really stand out for you i can just think of a few and bring a smile to my face because of their elegance so I just wanted to know if there's anything like that in having your mind. Almost something uh, just so elegant that it's just one that always jumps to your mind that like it reminds you of why the hypotheses that include deities are, are unlikely. I can give an example of what I'm thinking of here. Well, so one that just always jumps into my head is in Robert Sapolsky's book, Behave. He wrote about some research that was done that showed that there were a couple of studies that showed that different genetic variants of uh, dopamine receptors in people's brains were correlated with like increased or decreased levels of religiosity. So literally, there was some predictive power in knowing someone's genetics and like the likelihood that they would believe in a God. And so it's just for me, it's like completely incoherent to envision this God who says you must believe in me or like not believing in me is clearly not encouraged. And yet in my perfect design of the universe, I also added in a genetic variant, which made you significantly less likely to believe in me and and the reason i find that so compelling is because when people try and explain away you know the problem of evil and and the like they use god's benevolence of giving us all free will but you know this is clearly not free will i didn't choose my genes i didn't choose my parents and choose my you know neighborhood growing up really and so this is just like god clearly just giving me a dopamine receptor variant making me fairly uh, unlikely to find him or it or the noodly appendage compelling i totally get that and i agree that is that is pretty compelling but the crazy thing is there are you know not even out there it is people like some of the run-of-the-mill christians we've had debates with who would actually use that as an argument for god and for why some people aren't chosen by him so it's like oh there you see so god interferes with the world and he gives you the genes that you're either chosen and you get the right genes or you're not the chosen one and you don't and like you don't actually have free will to believe in him he he calls you and you haven't been called so there's nothing so you know like you could you could throw that one the other way if you have a, a convoluted enough belief network but beginning with certain premises I, I think that is quite compelling. For me, the one that's always sort of stuck out is, I, I, feel, I feel like, you know, you can hear all the arguments, but the arguments, you know, give you like the tool set to like 
think about it but there's there's those sort of emotive things that push you over the edge and and like build up the momentum for the arguments to like come together in a certain way especially because you're going from having like all this work to do just to like get back to like even a fair state before you can make a fair argument right because you're fighting years of indoctrination and societal norms and whatever but the, the one that sticks out for me is is old hitch uh, christopher hitchens in a in a debate and he sort of goes through how okay there's this god but you know, for 200,000 years of modern Homo sapiens existing, he let us live in pain and suffering and death and rape and murder and all of this, and then randomly appeared to some illiterate people in the desert and told them some stuff that actually, like, doesn't help at all. <laughs> and, and it's just this idea of, like, you know, 200,000 years and then suddenly decided, oh, I should do something now. And, and came in, like, like, why then? You know, these people were already worshipping deities and whatever. It's not like people weren't ready for 200,000 years. And just that, that, time, that time frame. And you look at that and you go, how, like, how does that make any sense, right? Like, if you God's, God's people are going to be God's people, like, how, how does that make any sense at all? And that just that time span, you know, 200,000 years versus, like, 2,000 years. Just emotively, that was so persuasive. One thing that I said I wanted to come back to earlier was describing or, you know, uh, linking up with what you expect to experience, your expectations. And I'm just remembering now that I used to, like, conduct experiments as a, as a kid. So I must have been, I had to have been younger than eight because of the house we were living in. But, like, I was like, well, you know, what if the force exists? So, like, let me just see if I can use the force. Okay, I can't do that. Or, like, what if magic spells exist? And then I was, like, trying to do magic spells. And at some point I started doing experiments. like, oh, if God's real, move this thing. And it never moved. I, that for me was actually a legitimate result, and I that like made me doubt a lot, right? So then, and then at some point, I came across that the verse that's like, you know, thou shalt not put God to the test. And then I was like, well, that the, it, that's just so convenient. So I think like at first that, at first that like brought me back, but over time I was like, that's 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 what your friend says when he says that he can do like a magic thing or he has a superpower, but he can't show you because if he shows you, he loses the power. You know, that that's exactly the kind of bullshit story your friend who's a liar makes up, right? It's actually amazing when you think about the extent to which children act like scientists. They, they also have like a perfectly adapted set of like meme machine settings to like take on the attitudes of parents without questions simultaneously totally gullible and totally curious at the same time so i guess related to what we've been speaking about having that crisis of faith moment right that first deep questioning is largely a matter of luck and so i wanted to ask if if you've had any times in your life where you've been similarly lucky along your path so if there's any stories that jump out to you where you just feel like, wow, you could have gone down a completely different path and, and it would have been no fault of your own necessarily, just, you know, bad luck. And I mean, this needn't be about faith or rationality, but anything really. Recently, a, a year ago, I read Sam Harris's Lying, which I feel already has significantly changed how my life is going to pan out. So Lying is actually an extended essay whereby he presents his, his interpretation of a course that he took as a student, which was all about lying and why humans lie and why it's almost never justified to lie in a modern secular society. You should, like, like the, the short term may be bad, but in the long term, the out, best outcome is always achieved by, by not being dishonest. So obviously, like something like if you're playing poker, you can bluff your opponent. It's a willful lie. It's not really lying. It's just playing the game. Um, and then, but, but pretty much for everything else, 
you know, he says you can have tact, but you shouldn't lie. Lying is essentially like the last resort just before violence as like a self-defense. You know, if, if the serial killer is coming at you with a chainsaw, you should try everything you can do. And if that fails, then you should lie to him. And if that fails, then you should use like physical violence. But, you know, like the, it, it's super last resort, right? And only if there's no other way. Yeah. I think it's incredibly effective. And if you doubt it's effective, have a look at any TV show, sitcoms, all the way to, you know, like the, the average kind of like rom-com type thing you'd have on Netflix. The entire premise of every episode, just about, is based on a lie of someone obscuring the truth in some way and all the repercussions that that has and how the lying catches up with them. Imagine a series that didn't have that. Just perfectly ethical characters. <laughs> I've started watching shows with that thought in my head and you just can't unsee it. It's just like everything that's going wrong in this in these people's lives in the story albeit is a result of them lying and then lying to get out of the situation they get themselves into by lying and you know the immediate pain would have been so you take something like friends it's like a perfect example right what could have been done in three episodes takes 10 seasons <laughs> because people can't be honest with each other um, and it's entertaining but you don't want to be the people in friends right you you want to watch friends or you want to act in friends but you don't want to be the people in friends so that's so that's one thing but it's only been a year but it's definitely radically reshaped how i think about the things i say and how i present truth i wanted to maybe ask uh if you have any like favorite lines of argument in there um my own example would be i really like the idea that it simplifies everything in that you a don't have to keep track of the various realities you're living but B, there's a computational kindness. If you view others as processing systems, then by being straightforward and not forcing them to make inferences and not forcing them to make these long extended searches through their memory, you know, by just telling them the set of all things that are relevant for them to know, you know, you save them a lot of mental compute and, and just wasted cycles. So those stand out for me. For myself, it was probably uh, the, the classic one of you become someone who is trustworthy because people know you don't lie and know you tell them the truth. So by telling people the truth when it's negative, telling them the truth when it's positive means so much more and they can take it, you know, at, at face value and it's much more meaningful and much more valuable to be like your, your, your advice as someone who tells the truth is orders of magnitude more valuable than if you're someone who's known to lie and embellish and, you know, tell people what they want to hear, right? So, like, people are going to come to you and it, your interactions are all based on authenticity and you get a reputation for that and that spreads. And I would say reputation, I don't mean it in the explicit sense. I mean, people's internal model of you becomes, whether consciously or not, someone who's trustworthy and reliable and accurately reflects reality. It, it's all about this idea of if you value truth and seeking truth, honesty is... Honesty is just mapping that onto social interactions. It's difficult though, right? I don't know about you, but you definitely, and maybe mindfulness helps here, but you feel the yank, the pull towards the, the easier way out often. Yeah, majorly. Uh, so a big one for me is um, making up excuses for why I'm late. Because I'm chronically tardy for a lot of things. 
Uh, a large part of it is to do with the fact that my chronotype is quite shifted. Um, so I, I struggle to fall asleep at night and I struggle to wake up early in the morning. So I'm often late for things that are early in the morning. But I also just I, I overestimate how quickly I can do things and get places. And so I'm, I'm often five to ten minutes late for things. And I often have a reason, but just because it's like, sorry, I'm late you've got like, you know, like a few syllables worth to justify it. And so often I would embellish or change or slightly tweak the story to make it better fit that I'm sorry I'm late, I was da 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 It's very tempting for me to go, oh, sorry, the traffic was bad, but it actually was because I forgot to boil the kettle and so it took me longer to make my coffee and that's why I'm late because like that's a shit excuse or like... I forgot, I put my pants on the wrong way, you know, whatever it may be. Um, so that's one that I find at least once a week is the temptation for me. What I've taken to doing now, I've tried to do two things. One is give people more realistic estimates. When, when I say to someone, like, I'll be there in five minutes, I now, like, fight that urge and try and say 10 or 15 because I've realized that giving people good news that's not true is the same as giving them no news. But then the other thing which I've found, maybe it's worth trying, is just not giving any reason at all. So I've just tried saying, like, I'm really sorry I'm late and leaving off the reason. I have, I have tried that. Sometimes it's just, like, it's just quiet afterwards, you know. Um, but yeah, so lying, lying, lying has been very impactful. But yeah, it, it, I think the awareness of how often we probably would lie if not for that commitment not to is one of the most powerful things that you get from it yeah i agree there i think just knowing that you have this overall commitment not to do it seems thankfully enough to reduce it in especially its most egregious forms it's fairly easy i find to lapse and forget that you're not meant to lie when something i'm not going to call it completely trivial but with lateness but certainly when it comes to bigger things now it's much easier to just notice that impulse and try and avoid it oh, without a doubt um i've just actually while we've been chatting was thinking about you know the influence of, of sam harris's work and i think finding waking up at the time i did and, and and how it affected me when i came across it was unarguably life-changing and potentially like life-saving it was just at such a critical moment for me and it offered it, it just gave me so much um, and has shaped my my life dramatically since then I want to I want to get into that. I just want to put something here on the table as well before I forget. You you mentioned just briefly there this uh, shift you have in your chronotype. And I was just asking myself, you know, to what extent like we are disabling a, a really large portion of society because they just genetically wake up late or go to bed late. I was thinking to like what extent if it's enough people, even if the negative aspect is really small, you know, if you just shut up and multiply, as is the rationalist dictum, how much negative is being caused there? And should we change our practices to accommodate? But let's let's table that for now and uh, go into your experience with waking up and, and if you want to talk about why it was so important when it was. So yeah, so I was, was my first year of varsity so i was like far away from home and it was like at a, is it a difficult time yeah it was like missing lectures things were not going well i don't think i knew who sam harris was at that point so like i found about out about him through the book i think someone had put put the whole book on youtube and so like it was a suggestion from a video and i think that's just how it must have happened but it's super super fortunate and it just yeah resonated with me in so many ways a his approach to like the way he thought the way he constructed an argument and walking through him step step by step and what he what he discussed about the you know the duality of mind and like the different like uh, sort of kinds of consciousness and 
modes of thinking and it's, you know to some extent he touches on the illusion of free will in that and the idea of your the emotions being entirely kind of a result of feedback loops whereby you know you can't really stay angry for more than like five seconds because physiologically the the actual chemistry of anger ends the only thing that keeps you angry is that you reinforce the thought pattern and so you then ultimately in total control of your anger because in five seconds it can be over if you are present enough and that got me meditating as well that book so yeah in in just like in in a number of areas it was tremendously valuable you know i started reading um uh douglas harding's book sam harris actually refers to it very often uh, on having no head and uh it did have a, a very weird effect on me which was brought about almost entirely by having it pointed out to me that if you if you close one eye and look at your nose and just let the implications of that drift out into whatever it is you notice. That in itself was a very sort of reality-altering perception. Yeah, I actually freaking, I'm, I'm doing it now, as is anyone who's listening to this. It's more uncanny than you think, because for the first time, you feel a little bit less like this perfect screen of vision uh, is just la- lying there, and more like you have this uh, window out of which you're appearing. Yeah, behind the eyes, yeah. And the, the, the idea of like moving your sort of center of self, which is typically behind your eyes or your center of like awareness to other like parts of your body or outside your body. I mean, this is like a super fun, fun thing to play with, especially if you, if, you, if you can get into a sensory deprivation tank, then you'd have sensory deprivation. It's, it's, it's a wonderful thing to play with because you lose everything except maybe your proprioception. I mean, have you ever done it? Have you have you tried uh, one of the tanks? Yeah, I did. I paid I paid quite a substantial amount of money to do it. Uh, like I think two years ago now. There's a place in Cape Town. It's actually yeah, it's in the middle of town. It's at a spa, and they just happen to have, and I think they're one of the few places in South Africa that has, um, and they're in reasonable quality. Yeah, so it's quite pricey, but it's um, it's a good experience. I'd say do it at least once. Yeah, I, I was looking to actually uh, try it. All right, I wanted to actually ask you another question, if you don't mind. I was thinking, you know, we've been speaking about like various lessons and, and just fortuitous things we've encountered, but are there any lessons or mantras or affirmations or whatever you want to call them that you find yourself repeating to yourself often, you know? So, I mean, one of them might sound something like, I don't tell lies or, you know, whatever it is that keeps you uh, on the straight and narrow, so to speak there, but are there any other ideas or, or concepts you just repeat often? Um... I, I not so much like specific like f- phrases or sayings because I feel those become too like you know easy to repeat they just become like Hail Marys and Our Fathers that you say to, to be to be done with your penance or when you're doing the rosary or something you know what I mean it, it's, it's just it, they just become hollow words at some point um, so I, I try and like d- distill down to the meaning or I, I suppose it's, it's more of just a natural thing um, so I don't think you know I don't lie I just feel like I don't lie and notice when i'm tempted to lie uh but i suppose that's very much linked to like a sam harris sort of character in my head that like i sort of think through his like voice it's, it ties back to this idea of voices in your head or that you cultivate as characters because they're better at giving you an outsider perspective but um i suppose i suppose another one is a kind of like a an eliezer yudkowski sort of character just like pausing and reminding you to think like how are you being biased and like are you noticing one that i've actually been saying to myself is uh, are you noticing that if you're confused you know he he says that a lot he's like i noticed that i was confused because that's that's when that's when something's up and that's when you've got to look is like okay what what's going on here inside my head like why is there this dissonance and why is my expectation not matching the reality 
So I, 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 I do, I suppose, say that to myself. Um, or, or I suppose express the sentiment maybe non-linguistically. But but yeah, those would definitely be two um, lately that I can think of. Yeah, um, I like that. Yeah, and what about for yourself? Um, I think the ones that I find myself coming back to is just trying to remember death itself as often as possible has been a useful practice for me. You know, whether it's just sitting there and, and asking like or, or telling myself like, just remember you are going to die. But the, the other thing which I've also come to rely on a lot is essentially just repeating the idea that like difficult or uncomfortable or otherwise non-optimal situations are opportunities to be excellent or virtuous. And I think I got that out of, I think it's a, it definitely comes from one of the Stoic philosophers. And I'm just going to go out on a limb and say Seneca. And I really like it because it you know it points to this whole idea of you can either view all these terrible things that are just going to happen as these horrible impositions on your life and, and how it's going, or as just further opportunities to better yourself. And and it, to finish off there, what I was going to say, it, it relates a lot to something Sam Harris pointed out so eloquently when he just asks you to consider, did you really expect to reach some point in your life at which you would have no more problems? Did you really expect to ever reach some point where you would just have solved whatever chaos it was that tends to permeate entropic systems such as ourselves? Yeah. So it's like you you were just running the hedonic treadmill because you thought you were going to arrive somewhere and then live happily ever after. But you're not. And you know that when you think about it. And so every difficulty is just a chance to to better yourself and every difficulty that you suffered in the past has bettered you to most appropriately suffer the difficulties now. Yeah, I think, and that woe is me attitude, it, it's a vicious sort of reinforcer of the worst or, or least helpful aspects of ourselves, I find. So I don't know, I'm, I'm trying an experiment at this at the moment, although it's, it's so far failed several times, but I still haven't ingrained the habit, but I'm trying to experiment with going on like a, a complaint fast or something, you know, like just refusing to complain about things for, let's say, two weeks or maybe even less. We'll see how long I can do it. And just seeing what effects that might have on my experience of the world. Mm. I've heard of this kind of challenge before and it's something I've been keen to do. I, I, the extreme mode is where you try and go 30 consecutive days, I think it is. And every time you fail, you have to start again. Um, <laughs> just quite a rough one. But yeah, I think I think it's actually a really, really good thing because I notice it's it's one of the things I least like about myself is complaining or at least like hearing of, you know, from myself. So it's definitely something that can be eliminated because like 99% has no value. Yeah, you're kind of saying things which you already know, the other person already knows. You're not expecting to solve the problem. You are not expecting to make any progress. You're just... And it's minimally cathartic anyway. I mean, we were speaking earlier about wasted compute or wasted efforts. And uh, for me, it, it really falls into that category. Yeah, it's like the equivalent of Windows prompting you that that copy is not genuine. Just wa wasted compute that achieves nothing. <laughs> And just worsens the experience of life. Um, yeah, I know. I think that's actually a reasonable place for us to wrap up. Ah, excellent. Well, I think that's a good place to leave it then. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to the Bit of a Tangent podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please get in touch with us and share your thoughts. You can email us at podtangent at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter through the handle at podtangent. For more information about us, our backgrounds, and other projects we're involved in, visit our website at podtangent.com. 
That's podtangent.com. The best ways to support us are to share one of our episodes with someone who may enjoy them and to give us a rating or review on iTunes. That way, Apple knows that we're actually worth listening to and all the platforms that pull content from them will too. We both love having these discussions and relish the opportunity to share ideas with like-minded people around the world. So your support and listenership are sincerely appreciated. Until next time.